So does somebody have the chance or is Derek here yet? <laughs> He's here. Okay. Hi. Hi. Fancy meeting you guys here. Usually we sit till 7.35. Why don't we do a little- as a group to shorten it. They did? They did, yeah. Oh. Did they have a reason? So that so we get through all the material. Oh, they are so smart. Okay. Everybody have their chance. Hold on. Hi, good evening. How's everyone? Good. Not bad. Good. <laughs> Making friends with being imprisoned at home. It's a retreat, remember? Uh, I keep forgetting. Good thing you have uh, air conditioning, right? Okay. Is that a plastic cut banga? Yeah, it's a little, that's right. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood from my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood from my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels. That all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood. From my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues in the many fields of being, all our steps, knowledge, all our steps on the path of omniscience. It is arising in the, in the path in the clear mirror of intellect. Oh, Manjushri, please accomplish this. Just like the six ornaments and two supreme ones who beautify our world, you were their equal in their mastery of compassion, learning, and realization. Did you practice hidden in the forest and sacred solitude? Long Chen Pa, who perfected samsara and nirvana in the state of Dharmakaya, Trina Ozer, stainless light at your feet, we pray. Grant your blessing so we may realize the natural state, the true nature of mind. Here, here. Oh, hold on. I've got to turn the fan on here. Hold on a second. Good evening. So this this evening, uh, let's see. We have a couple of show and tell things. 
Uh, Emily, can you allow me to, oh, you're way ahead of me. Thank you. One moment here to save these things from our emails. First, first handout for this evening is uh, is a wonderful job that Cynthia Spencer did to uh, show all the categories from last week. The three natures, imputed, dependent, actual, Tibetan, Sanskrit. This is awesome, Cynthia. Thank you so much. Imputed, free of characteristics of two types, figurative, dependent of two types, pure, impure, and pure. Three kinds of emptiness, self, other, both, each of two types. This is awesome. Wow, that's so cool. I'm working on this this week's now, too. I've got a little bit done. That is awesome. Thank you. So I'll circulate this to everyone. And then here, here's a diagram of the 10 levels of being. This was drawn by um, famous high-tech graphic artists. Um, uh, the Tibetan autonomous region. Here's the tenth level. Is the background. Is the overarching uh, container. So Dharma Dharma Dhatu is level ten. Are you showing it, Derek? Oh, can you not see it? Not yet. Not yet. No. Well, could you see uh, Cynthia's handout? Yes. How's that? Can you see it now? Yes. yes. Is that beautiful? Is that a work of art or what? Yes, or what? It's very minimalist. 
Here's the eighth consciousness that emerges out of the ninth, the alia, the base, the ground. <laughs> ground extends everywhere. The eighth emerges out of that, and then the seventh thinks it's really a big deal, so it takes up a lot of space. The ego, consciousness. <laughs> and then we have the mind, the sixth consciousness, and then the five uh, sense consciousnesses. Uh, smell, taste, hearing, seeing, and in the middle of the body. So the body is the center post. And then 10 is the Dharmadhatu, which surrounds everything. So that pretty much, the, between those two, I think we got it, right? We should all reach the 11th Bhumi by now. Okay, so um, tonight we're on uh, the Universal Ground, which starts on page uh, 191. And as usual, let's read through it so we can try to understand it. I'll pretend to understand it and try to explain it. And you guys can pretend to uh, humor me. How's that? Deal? <laughs> All actions that lead either to samsara or to the total purity of enlightenment are based in the manner of seeds in the universal ground. Punji. That's how that's pronounced. That's a Tibetan word that means all. Kun, it means all. And then Shi means ground. As it is said in uh, the Immaculate Wisdom of Manjushri Sutra, the universal ground is the ground of all. It is the ground of samsara, of nirvana, and of the totally pure dimension of enlightenment. Interestingly, that it presents three avenues, samsara, nirvana, and the uh, totally pure dimension of enlightenment because uh, in this case it presents nirvana and samsara as opposites and so those are sort of on uh, in a in a sort of a limited sense of nirvana as the opposite of samsara whereas um, what ideally grows out of this fundamental ground is the dharmadhatu the uh, totally pure dimension of enlightenment Dharmakaya, sorry. Now to refer to suchness or the ultimate expanse as the universal ground is to consider it as the neutral and completely indeterminate basis of all categorization. So this fundamental ground is universal, meaning it encompasses everything and pervades everywhere. It's neutral. It's not either good or bad in terms of karmic uh, momentum. And it, uh, it has a completely indeterminate basis, which is similar to uh, uh, neutral. It's uh, indeterminate karmically. And it is on or within this ground that primordially unconditioned awareness is based in a spontaneously present manner. And let's see, 152.
this awareness as uh, the awareness of Dharma Dhatu, pure awareness, spontaneously present within or upon this ground. From this point of view, moreover, the ultimate expanse is referred to as the ultimate universal ground of joining. So uh, this universal ground, Kunji, has these uh, two names that he gives it. One, uh, the ultimate universal ground of joining, which is what links us to enlightenment between where we are now and enlightenment joins what, where we are now and uh, enlightenment and forms a bridge to enlightenment. And then the other forms the avenue into samsaric world. We'll see that in a minute. The failure to recognize awareness is the basis for the phenomena of samsara. The failure of recognizing awareness, that failure is the basis for the phenomena of samsara, which is contained within the eight consciousnesses together with their habitual tendencies. And it is from this point of view that the ultimate expanse is referred to as the universal ground of various habitual tendencies. So the universal ground expanse is this fundamental uh, ground that's indeterminate. And it has uh, these two possibilities. On the one hand, it leads to enlightened wisdom, nature, dharmakaya. And on the other hand, it leads into samsara consisting of the eight consciousnesses. When one fails to recognize awareness, pure awareness. Uh, let's see. On which are based, so uh, upon this universal ground of various habitual tendencies are based all conditioned virtue and non-virtue, both virtue and non-virtue, through which the various states of happiness and suffering arise because virtue also re uh, results in samsara, just it results in a pleasant version of samsara. All the virtuous actions that cause and lead to their result, namely happiness and samsara, are based on the universal ground of habitual tendencies. This, this potentiality of the universal ground for giving rise to samsara. And it is on this too that all the virtues leading to liberation are based. Finally, the result, which consists in the removal of or separation from obscuring stains, is based on the Buddha potential. This may be explained in greater detail as follows. Okay, so um, the Buddha nature, the Buddha potential, Rick, uh, in this term in Tibetan, Rick is uh, not the usual term for Buddha nature, but is the propensity that resides within all beings of having, for having Buddha nature. It's a, sort of related to it. Um, and it has to do with, it sort of means being of a, a certain clan or family or genus. It's because all beings are of the, all uh, sentient beings are of the same 
family, and therefore they have Buddha nature. On the inter so on 192, to continue, uh, where he explains this Buddha potential in greater detail, on the indeterminate universal ground, that ninth level, the Kunji in Tibetan, which is Alia in Sanskrit. I'm sorry, I didn't say that earlier. Alia, which is different than Alia Vijnana, which is the eighth consciousness. On the indeterminate universal ground are based in both their causal and resultant aspects, negative action, lesser, samsaric virtue, action leading to liberation, which, i.e., that which results in the removal of obstructions to the state beyond suffering, and action leading to total purity, namely all the realizations that occur on the path. So within samsara, we have this whole range of different types of activity spanning from negative, uh, negative karmic activity to uh, purely sort of worldly positive karmic activity to uh, positive karmic activity that leads to enlightenment. Virtue leading to liberation, which is an aspect of the truth of the path in terms of the four truths, the four noble truths, the fourth truth, is conditioned and advantageous and is based on the universal ground of various habitual tendencies as the cause or agent of or separation from obscuring stains. The state resulting from such a removal has its basis in the Buddha, Buddha potential. So uh, the removal of stains by this type of virtue that leads to liberation brings about the uh, awakening or um, activation of the Buddha potential. It is as when the sun is freed from the clouds that obscure it. The resultant light is grounded in the sun itself. So it reveals um, by activating this Buddha potential, then the Buddha nature itself is revealed. And he quotes the Uttara Tantra Shastra, which is one of the five texts of Maitreya that is uh, basically the core or root commentary on the entire teachings of the third turning of the wheel of the Dharma of the Buddha. And uh, is very famous for presenting the, uh, the uh, nature and qualities of Buddha nature in great uh, detail, subtlety, and also beauty. Earth is based on water. Water is based on wind, and wind indeed is based on space, but space itself is not based on the elements of wind or water or of earth. Likewise, aggregates, elements, and senses, which are uh, known as the three skills in the Abhidharma world, the skandhas, datus, and ayatanas, are all based on karma and defilement. And karma and defilement both depend upon the mind's improper use. 
when the mind's in proper use depends upon the mind's own purity. But the nature of the mind itself does not depend on any such phenomena. So these things are unborn and ultimately baseless. In the same way as it is said here, the pure Buddha fails and all the enlightened qualities are primordially present in the manner of the twofold Buddha potential. The, uh, the Buddha potential that is uh, nascent or unborn, not, not developed, and the Buddha potential that is uh, energized or awakened or activated within the space-like pure nature of the mind. Pure Buddha fields and all enlightened qualities are primordially present in the space-like pure nature of our minds. The Buddha potential is the primordial pure expanse of ultimate reality. And uh, uh, he, in the in the notes, there's uh, this very interesting term. which uh, 155 refers you to uh, 56. And in 56, he gives the Tibetan again in the footnote uh, 56 on 276. And then he gives in Sanskrit the, the uh, Shubha Dharma Datu. So this is the Dharma Datu of uh, bliss. Dharmadhatu of purity, actually. The pure expanse of ultimate reality. So they're translating Dharmadhatu as the pure expanse of, uh, sorry, the uh, expanse of ultimate reality and the Shubha at the beginning uh, yields the word pure, purified. Back to page 193. The Buddha potential is the primordial pure expanse of ultimate reality. So it's the positive, the purified quality of the expansive reality of the Dharma Dhatu. It is the ground, it is the basis for the separation from or removal of obscuration. It is thus the basis for nirvana. Here it is necessary to understand the four terms. And so he gives this very famous four-fold scheme that forms the framework for Vajrayana, view, meditation, and practice. There's the ground or the basis of removal of obscurations. Then there's, so that there's the ground that uh, um, of our being which is what we want to purify of obscurations, that which we want to purify, make to make pure the ground. Then there's a causal agent of removal, i.e. that which removes the obscurations, which is the two accumulations. Then there's the result of the removal, is the uh, enlightened state, the purified state of being, enlightenment. And there's the object of removal, that which is to be removed, the obscurations themselves. 
which is an interesting scheme because Vajrayana is famous for having the view that uh, the ground is already pure and the obscurations are incidental, which they get, the Vajrayana gets from the third turning of the wheel of the Dharma of the Buddha, and in particular the Uttara Tantra Shastra that he just quoted from, is famous for explaining that quality. Uh, but we take this framework in Vajrayana as if there is something to be removed and something to be cleaned and some method of cleaning it and some result of cleaning it. He continues, the basis or ground for the removal or separation. Um, and uh, the Tibetan he gave in the sentence before actually uh, has the word separation in it. So it's the, the, the uh, ground which is to be separated from impurity. That basis or ground for the removal or separation is the Buddha element, the Buddha potential or essence, garba. So the, the first one is um, I can't remember the Sanskrit for that. The causal agent of the removal is virtue leading to liberation. Positive uh, accumulation of the two accumulations, which cleans away the stains upon the ground of the removal and is the aspect of the path. The result of the removal is the immaculate sugata garba, which is, uh, is similar to tathagata garba, but has a positive spin. Tathagata Garba has a little bit of a uh, uh, indeterminate or neutral quality in terms of the uh, feeling tone of Buddhahood. Whereas Sugata Garba implies the incredi incredibly joyful, blissful nature of Buddhahood. The result of the removal is the immaculate Sugata Garba, the actualization of all enlightened qualities. The object of removal, the factors to be removed or detached or separated, to be separated from that ground, are the eight consciousnesses, together with their habitual patterns, are what is to be cleaned away, swept away, like a pile of dust. Based as these are on the universal ground of various habitual tendencies. In the language of Vajrayana, the secret mantra, these four terms are referred to as the ground of purification, the agent or means of purification, the result of purification, and the factors to be purified. The terminology is different, but the meaning is the same, and this is the scheme that all Vajrayana practice follows. All the causes of the impure state of samsara, along with the associated consciousnesses, and also all the conditioned virtues that connect one to the ground of liberation have for a long time been based without being actually located anywhere in the universal ground of various habitual tendencies, the nature of which is the state of ignorance. So he emphasizes, well, he puts in parentheses without being actually located anywhere, which refers back to the quote from the Uttara Tantra of, uh, 
the aggregates and so forth are, are based on mind, which is not based on anything. So basically ignorant mind, ignorant being, deluded being is not really based anywhere. It has its own imaginary existent, uh, existence that sort of floats within its own uh, space because it only exists within its own reference point. Ignorance and the states flowing from ignorance only exist within their own reference point, from the reference point of the larger picture of the Subhita Garbha or the Dharma Dhatu or enlightened nature. Ignorance is not real. It does not exist. So that was samsara. All the qualities of nirvana are based in the ultimate expanse, the alaya, kunshi, which is why the latter is known as the ultimate ground of joining. So it also has this quality of joining up with this ability to join up with nirvana or enlightenment. Its nature is empty. And this is a very famous characterization of the true nature of reality. Because this is reality, samsara is not real. This is real. This nirvana, this um, enlightened world is real. And its nature is emptiness, empty. Its character or uh, quality is luminous. Or its, its uh, manifestation is luminous and its uh, cognitive potency is all-pervading. Usually it's, uh, that third one is uh, its way of appearing. Its manner of appearing is ceaseless and all-pervading. And uh, Tukje, the Tibetan for cognitive potency, the third term, um, is the term that's used for compassion, great-hearted. Uh, the first word is, is uh, heart, and then J is an honorific, the heart of the Lord, the heart of the, uh, like when they say J, Jetson, Jetson Milarepa, J. Its jewel-like qualities are spontaneously present. It's not produced. They're spontaneously present. It's neither stained, nor is it freed from stains. It never was a uh, it impacted or affected at all by the stains. It is primordially, primordially luminous and is inseparable from the kayas and wisdoms. So it is the trikaya and the various wisdoms of Buddhahood. This state is referred to as the fundamental mode of being, the true nature of being, the true way that things abide. From the standpoint of its utter purity, it is referred to with, with such terms as the space-like state, absence of characteristics, emptiness, the perfectly unconditioned state, and so on. Terms spanning sutra and tantra. Emptiness is the essential uh, term in the Sutrayana Mahayana tradition, whereas uh, some of the others span sutra and tantra and so on. Nevertheless, it is not mere nothingness, a nihilistic void, for within its state of luminosity, the kayas and wisdoms are spontaneously present. They're always there, always present. 
uncreated, unborn, and unceasing, but always present. It is totally free or empty of samsaric phenomena. And he quotes the Gangaviva Sutra. Uh, the pure disk of the moon is always full and free from stain owing to its temporal phases. Us worldly folks think that it grows and shrinks. So too, the actual universal ground is replete at all times with the Buddha essence. This essence that the Tathagata indicated with the name universal ground. Childish in their ignorance, enslaved by habit, see this universal ground in forms of various joys and pains. So we see it as the ground of habitual tendencies, whereas the Buddhists see it as the, the basis of joining. Um, we in various uh, forms of various joys and pains as karma, ordinary cognition, and defilement. Its nature, nonetheless, is pure and free from stain. So this is the ninth ground that has this indeterminate quality with these two potentials of going either to samsara or nirvana. Its qualities are like the wish-fulfilling gem. It is unmoving and free from change. To recognize it perfectly is utter freedom. So recognizing this indeterminate nature results then in, Buddha, in Buddhahood. And Maitreya Zutra Tantra says, therein there is nothing to remove, and thereto not the slightest thing to end. The perfect truth viewed perfectly and perfectly beheld is liberation. So it's complete within itself. Many names are given to this universal ultimate universal ground. It is the basis, source, and cause of removal of obscuration and so on. And it is from the point of view that it is referred, it is from the point of this point of view that it is referred to as the ultimate universal ground of joining, as the beginningless, pure expanse of ultimate reality, as the Sugadagarva, the Buddha element, as the luminous nature of the mind, the Dharmadhatu, the most fundamental mode of being as naturally pure suchness as the perfection of wisdom and so on. So when it's when it's recognized, it becomes all of those. So it has that potential there spontaneously present. Once again, the habitual tendencies of samsara are based upon the nature of the mind. And it is from this point of view that the nature of the mind is referred to as the universal ground of various habitual tendencies. For it provides the support for the gathering of non-virtuous actions, virtuous actions, actions that lead to liberation, and actions that lead to the total purity of enlightenment. And notice how he, he, he keeps saying liberation and the total purity of enlightenment, as if they're two separate things. It sounds like they're repetitive, but they're considered to be two different stages of, of development in the Mahayana tradition. Liberation is the uh, accomplishment of the path of seeing, which results in the liberation from samsara, the belief in the self, and uh, the total purity of enlightenment is Buddhahood, the path of no more learning. These actions, which from the very beginning are devoid of real existence, arise adventitiously, the key word, coming from the Uttara Tantra is that defilements of this ground are adventitious. They're not of its nature. And therefore they can be purified because they're adventitious. Uh, let's see. 
Furthermore, both positive and negative actions are based upon the universal ground of various habitual tendencies. And since the nature of the universal ground of various habitual tendencies is ignorance, the absence of discernment, it is indeterminate. Some say that its nature is not ignorance because it is itself the support of the five poisons as well as of utter purity. This is simply a misunderstanding, however, for the ignorance here referred to as being the nature of the universal ground is not the ignorance that is numbered among the five poisons. In the present case, the ignorance is the co-emergent ignorance, the first moment of delusion that leads to samsara. So this is the fundamental root ignorance that resides in this, in this uh, indeterminate universal ground. Also, as, a, uh, as, as an unawakened potential, just as the, the Buddha nature resides there as an unawakened or unactivated potential. So that in that universal ground, Alia, the ninth level, you have the potential in the form of ignorance and uh, pure awareness for giving rise to either samsara on the one hand or nirvana on the other hand. And uh, the Nyingma tradition is very unique in having a, a very uh, clear and explicit distinction between different types of ignorance, different levels of ignorance, and starting with this uh, co-emergent ignorance. The assertion that the universal ground provides support for the utter purity of enlightenment also requires examination. So he acknowledges that this is a, this is a fine point and is not uh, universally understood or acknowledged and needs some explanation. Begs explanation. The universal ground of various habitual tendencies is the support neither for the, of the primordial wisdom of Buddhahood, which is endowed with the twofold purity Mordial purity of the Dharmakaya and purity from all adventitious stains, which is the, the purity that's brought about by eliminating advent, or separating from adventitious stains, nor of the Buddha essence. So it's the support neither of the primordial wisdom of Buddhahood nor of the Buddha essence. This is because the universal ground as such is to be transmuted into wisdom. So I spoke, misspoke a little, a little bit just a few minutes ago in saying it was the basis for uh, where he's, whereas he's clarifying that um, it's not the support for the Buddha essence or the primordial wisdom, um, but it's that which can be transmuted into wisdom, into those when it's activated. So it, it is the potentiality for those states. So this is confusing. This, this uh, ninth fundamental uh, ground, it's a very confusing topic and uh, uh, misinterpreted and misrepresented or mispresented in various places and ways and, and uh, has this very subtle, elusive quality of being the potential for going both ways, but not actually being of the nature of one or the other. As it is said in the sacred golden light suit of the universal ground, once transmuted is the Dharmakaya itself. So the universal ground disappears into 
And in the exhaustion of the four elements, Tantra, we find universal, <coughs> excuse me, the purified universal ground is the Dharmadhatu. When purified, it is the Dharmadhatu. The universal ground of various habitual tendencies is not the support of the Buddha element. It is rather the support or cause for the separation of impurities from the Buddha element. So the Buddha element resides there, not in the in the nature of support and supported, because the Buddha nature or the Buddha element resides spontaneously, spontaneously present. It needs no support. But uh, the the fundamental ground is the support for the uh, separation of defilements from the Buddha essence. Defilements were, which never really covered the Buddha essence or element, but only seemed to from the point of view of ignorance. Thus, it provides the support simply for the process of enlightenment through the conditioned accumulations of merit and the wisdom which result from meditating on the path. Since the accumulations are contained within the truth of the path, they are said to be deceptive and impermanent. It's a little bit of an odd statement, but um, it's just like they, they have this need to classify things one way or another. And the, uh, the, only of the, the only truth, the only part of the four truths that is completely pure is the third cessation. And the fourth truth has this quality of being deceptive and, and impermanent because it is the path. It's not the completion of the path. Anyway, not, a, not a, an important point. More important is to get, get an idea of this basis for purification. That is the true nature of our mind, the true basis of our mind. Um, and this is so because they are based on the universal ground of various habitual tendencies. If they are based on the universal ground, it may be asked, how could the two accumulations adversely affect the same ground? It's just as with a flame that depends upon a wick while yet consuming it. So how could, how could you know, enlightenment grow out of this, this sort of ignorant side of reality or this sort of defiled side of reality. And he's saying that the defilement de uh, burns itself up. That, that ignorance burns itself up in the way that a wick burns itself up while you're consuming it and like a fire that burns the wood on which it depends, which is a famous analogy, that the, the wood of our ignorance and conceptual mind rubs against each other creates a fire, and that fire then burns up all of it. So ignorance and defilement uh, are, are completely consumed in the fire that's generated within ignorance and defilement. And this is this elusive quality of like, how do we progress on the path to, uh, to go beyond karma, to go beyond the conditioned existence. If we're caught in this bind of conditioned existence, our very effort to go beyond conditioned existence is conditioned. It's like, <clears throat> it's like spiritual materialism. How do we ever get out of the trip of spiritual materialism? How can we ever 
progress on the path if we want to progress on the path. If we want to progress on the path, then we're, we have the, uh, the sort of worldly goal of progressing on the path, or the, sorry, not worldly, but sort of ego-enhancing goal of progressing on the path. And uh, so we need, to, we need to want to gain enlightenment. We need to sort of cultivate an ego that wants to gain enlightenment. And in that process, the ego, the ego burns itself up in this way. Derek? Yes, ma'am. Derek? Yes, ma'am. So it's, it's interesting because it's like we need it. We need the defilement. We need the ignorance because that's the, provides the fuel for enlightenment. Moving along the path to enlightenment. If it wasn't there, we wouldn't. Of course, if it wasn't there, we wouldn't need to go because <laughs> we'd already be enlightened, which is kind of interesting. But yeah, okay. That was great. <laughs> Spirit, you know, being with you in that thought process. And, and yes, yes. The, like, and if it wasn't, oh, if it wasn't there, then we wouldn't need to get. <laughs> That's right. It's Never a, mind. I just thought it was interesting. But you could say you could say it differently because it's there. We can use it. Yeah, and the more the better. You know, they say the more confusion, the more wisdom. Right. So the more more wood for the bonfire. Or is it That's also it. manure? Yeah. Don't they also say it's manure for our sure. practice? Absolutely. I yeah. I was wondering, Derek, if um. I, I seem to remember somewhere reading about the three natures um, being a description of process, not so much the, the, the same process that he's talking about is kind of what the three natures represent. They're, they're meant to be a sort of uh, a scheme for uh, cultivating experience as opposed to being a static sort of snapshot of the way things are. Mm -hmm. uh, the two truths are meant that way as well, but they don't succeed. Uh, they don't, uh, they're not as obvious. They're sort of um, clearly a sort of a way of leading you on from one nature to the next nature by understanding the, the uh, completely uh, imaginable, imagined or imputed nature then we discover the, the dependent nature. And by discovering the dependent nature separate from the dependent nature, we discover the completely pure nature. And these are not three separate phenomena. They're not, um, it's not like some phenomena are only one or the other, but all three uh, can exist at once or, or only one of them when is really there and you understand correctly. Mm. So let's see. Can I interrupt just for a moment? Um, the, uh, there is the wish fulfilling jewel is an extremely common uh, term used in uh, describing this. The, here it was used for the ultimate, the uh, universal ground, I believe. And I've always, I keep getting caught wondering if it's the potential to manifest that makes it a wishful, you know, just the pure potential for things to manifest 
is what is being referred to by that wish-fulfilling jewel? I think it's more than that. It's, uh, I think the potential for things to manifest can go, you know, either way. Uh, but I think it's called a wish-fulfilling jewel because it, when it's cultivated properly, it yields whatever mind desires. Uh, can I expand? Because it seems to me that the mind is manifesting all the time. Um, and yes, to proper, if it's properly trained and tamed, then we can manifest at least steps towards enlightenment. But it does seem like it, even in our samsaric state, it's manifesting all the time. It is. is. Is am I correct in thinking that? Or? Yeah, the the mind is manifesting constantly. And <clears throat> um, it's it's usually manifesting as uh, uh, purely uh, as completely dependent nature. I'm sorry, as uh, completely imputed natures, as completely uh, imputed phenomena, imaginary phenomena for most of us, most of the time, is what the mind is manifesting as. Fictitious entities that we believe have real existence. And that would not, that's not really a, a sort of wish-fulfilling jewel quality because uh, those are not that helpful. The imaginary uh, visions that our minds dream up of things being truly existent but the uh the possibility for enlightened experience and the pure dependent phenomena is what makes it a wish-fulfilling jewel so let's see um since the passage of two accumulations actualizes buddhahood thereby rendering uh, manifest the Buddha nature as it is in its pristine state before being veiled. It is called a pure condition or cause. The two accumulations as opposed to other types of karmic activity. Subsequently, however, even this purifying antidote, i.e. the path of the two accumulations, is it consumed for it's part of the truth of the path, the fourth truth, as he stated above. For it is a virtue that is imputed by the mind, the two accumulations, and thus belongs to the imputed reality, the imputed nature. As it said in the commentary to the Uttara Tantra Shastra, in the moment of manifest enlightenment, all true paths are eliminated. So e even, uh, even the truth of the path gets eliminated in enlightenment as well as the truth of suffering and the origin. And all that remains is true cessation. As it is said in the Madhyamaka Avatara, the introduction to the middle way by Chandra Kirti, the tinder of phenomena is all consumed and this is peace, the Dharmakaya of the conquerors. 
So it is taught here and elsewhere. And yet one may ask, how can all true paths be eliminated? For the truth of the path consists in the emptiness of what should not be spurned, as well as of the 37 factors of enlightenment, that wonderful list that we went through. What would we do without that great list? Uh, but the emptiness of what should not be spurned and the 37 factors are included in the level of Buddhahood. Phew. <laughs> They're included in the level of the truth of cessation. They are not part of the path because they belong to the stage at which the path is perfected. It's an interesting view about the 37 because they seem to be qualities to be developed along the path. But he's taking a fruitional viewpoint as is common in Vajrayana. It is said that the universal ground of various habitual tendencies is referred to by means of many synonymous terms. Co-emergent ignorance, which you mentioned before, beginningless and endless obscuration, great darkness, primordial nescience, and so on. One of your homework projects would be to come up with more synonyms for this. Moreover, the nature of the mind is like space. This beginningless expanse is called the ultimate universal ground of joining because liberation depends on it. It is also called the universal ground of various habitual tendencies because samsara is based on it. And it is explained from that that from this nature of the mind there arise happiness and suffering, faults and excellent qualities, all of which belong to the distinct experiences of samsara and nirvana. He's been repeating this same thing like over and over and over again. And you get the feeling that this must be a, a topic that has not been made clear in his opinion in the in the literature available at the time. I would I think, which is why he's uh, repeating it so many times, going over it, emphasizing, as well as him, he seems to view it as a very important topic. Again, the commentary to the Uttaratantra, which would be uh, by a Sangha, declares, endless and beginningless in time, the ultimate expanse is where all things abide, all migrating beings. And uh, in case you're not aware of this, all beings who dwell in nirvana called are called migrators because we all migrate from one realm to another so we're all migrators just to have the state you said the, all that live in dwell in nirvana did you mean samsara I or meant, did you mean both did i really say nirvana well i think so yes <laughs> so all that dwell in samsara thus they have the state beyond all pain it is now time to distinguish the universal ground of the eight consciousnesses. Finally, the universal ground of various special tendencies, which in respect to virtue and non-virtue is indeterminate. It's like a mirror. Does that ring any bells? The mirror, you guys, you know any mirrors? Any, any, like really big, huge, Mirrors from like the outer space. Cosmic or something like that? Cosmic mirror, yes. The great cosmic mirror. Anybody read any of the Shambhala teachings of Shogyam Chumpa? The cosmic mirror without beginning and without end. Uh, let's see. It's like a mirror. The consciousness. So uh, the universal ground, this ninth level, is like a mirror. The consciousness of the universal ground is like the clear sheen of that mirror. It's like the very surface of that mirror. 
Um, and the consciousnesses of the five senses are like images reflected therein. Now, the first moment of clear discernment, so he goes through the progression of how cognition happens. Again, we had this one or two classes ago in terms of the appearing object and the apprehended and so forth, the aspect. Uh, the first moment of clear discernment of a foregoing object or uh, of a supposed object, the first moment of identity. Derek? Yes, ma'am. Just a quickie. Uh, where is our sixth consciousness in this scheme here? I think he's going to tell us that. Oh, he is? Okay. I hope so. <laughs> okay. that, if not, ask me again, and we'll try to figure that out. It comes at the le end of the paragraph, I think. Okay. He doesn't say six, but the mental, the mental consciousness. Is there? Yeah. See, the first moment of clear discernment of a supposed object, the first moment of identifying an appearing object of one of the five senses which are not outside the mind, extramental, by the way, but are not the mind, remember that, that whole conundrum, is the mental consciousness or the intellect. The feeling of desire, aversion, or indifference that then arises toward the perceived object is called the defiled mental consciousness, the nyun yi. So uh, uh, the first moment of clear discernment the moment of identifying an appearing object to the five senses is the sixth consciousness, is the mental consciousness or the intellect. Is it consistent? And then the last one, the defiled, is the seventh? Yeah, that's the seventh. That's the ego. The ego consciousness. Yeah. Certain masters in the past have said that if the defiled mental consciousness does not examine the object, the consciousness of the, of the six gatherings alone do not accumulate karma because they're not conditioned by any of the three poisons. Now that very obscure little sentence there is, is talking about does non-conceptual sense cognition. And sense cognition by definition is non-conceptual which is called direct cognition in the lingo of uh, the Buddha Dharma, the uh, valid cognition tradition. Sense consciousnesses are by definition non-conceptual. So some people think that therefore they're not karmically stained by ignorance and by karma. Let's hear his opinion. This assertion however, must be further examined. This is indeed the case when the view, meditation, and conduct are maintained once the nature of phenomena has been recognized. So if you recognize the true nature of reality as being the indivisibility of emptiness and luminosity, and you're able to maintain that view, meditation, and conduct, then you experience the absence of karmic accumulation through the five senses. On the other hand, beings who have never turned their minds to these matters and who are thus in a state of ignorance do as a result accumulate negative karma from sense perceptions. Interesting, Interesting point of view.
So question, question that, that level that he's describing of uh, when the view, meditation, and conduct are maintained and the nature of phenomena has been recognized, is that first Bhumi or is that later? It's unclear, isn't it? Mm. It's unclear, but it, it, it implies path of seeing onward. It would be at least first, it would be at least path of seeing. That seems to be the, the that seems to be the case. The uh, true nature of phenomena has been recognized. Okay. The recognized is a little unclear because you know they have this scheme of understanding, um, uh, experiencing, and then realizing. And uh, um, experiencing is approaching the path of seeing. Experiencing is still on the path of joining where we have uh, momentary experiences of the understanding of emptiness, but we don't actually have the the complete enchilada, which is a technical term in the uh, Abhidharma tradition. (laughs) But here, since he uses recognized, then we could probably assume that it means path of seeing and not just, um, not experience, but actual recognition. Realization, yes, I think so. I would agree. To state the matter more explicitly would be helpful. The door through which karma is accumulated is the mental sense organ, the sixth consciousness in concert with the five effective sense organs working together in cahoots. The agents of karmic accumulation are the defiled mental consciousnesses, the virtuous mental consciousnesses, and the neutral mental consciousnesses. The karma is accumulated in the universal ground while the consciousnesses of the universal ground provides the space in which karma is developed, accumulated, diminished, and so on. That's a mouthful. Wow. So first he introduces this idea that there's defiled mental consciousnesses, virtuous and neutral mental consciousnesses. And he's implying that these are different for the sixth consciousnesses. Well, so the, isn't, I mean, the, isn't the defiled one the seventh? It, uh, separately, I would agree with you, but the way he states this triad here, yeah, the other two I can't say. I was going to ask about that too. What what the split of virtuous and neutral would neutral would I mean is neutral going back to the Aliyah Vishnana level or the the part that's indeterminate? No. The only thing I can figure is that he's that these types of consciousnesses are when the sixth con, uh, is uh, when the uh, the primary consciousness, the primary mind is teamed up with either negative positive or neutral mental factors. So when you go through all the mental factors, the 51, some of them are positive, virtuous, some are uh, non-virtuous, and some of them are neutral. So it's more of a situational thing as opposed to being based on on a whole level of consciousness. It's a situational specific thing. Right, but that all happens in the sixth consciousness. Mm-hmm. Different types of sixth consciousness. And then he says karma is accumulated in the universal ground in the ninth. Um, While well, the consciousness of the universal ground, which is the eighth, 
provides the space in which karma is developed, accumulated, and diminished. So accumulation happens in two places. That's kind of different. Isn't it often talked about that it's in the eighth that it's accumulated? It is. That, that part where it says the karma is accumulated in the universal ground is very unusual. And unfortunately, the translators don't uh, footnote it. Could it be the universal ground of habitual tendencies? Is it that would, the one he's referring to? It would definitely be that one, if, if any, yes. Which is not really like a separate universal ground, you know. It's really that the universal ground has these two qualities. These two... Uh, right. Quotes from so, the, uh, are the three, the defiled, virtuous, and neutral, all part of the sixth consciousness? I would... Oh, yes, I think so. Okay. Yeah. Uh, let's see. And then he quotes the commentary to the Sutra Alamkara, uh, which was composed by Stiramati. The commentary was in the Sutra Alamkara, is composed by Maitreya, one of the five texts of Maitreya. The mental organ, i.e., the sixth consciousness, is, and the five, uh, sorry, the mental organ is the basis for the sixth consciousness. Uh, it's not necessarily the brain, it's the mind, the sixth mind. And the five sense organs, the eyes and so on, the translators say, well, it's not really the eyes, it's the, it's the, uh, the, the sense, uh, sensibility that resides within the eyes and so forth. Anyway, those are the doors of karmic deeds. These are the access points for engaging in action. In other words, these are the access points for the accumulation of karma. The mental consciousness or intellect, yi, uh, uh, which is synonymous with sense in this case, which entertains virtuous, non-virtuous, or neutral thought, is the agent of karmic action. The six objects, the objects of the six senses, form and so on, are the objects of those actions. The consciousness of the universal ground, the eighth, provides the space for karmic action, while the universal ground is the basis or location, the home, as it were, for such action. I think, he's, I think uh, the, the way that they're uh, presenting this is that the ninth is the, uh, the place where all of this activity of the eighth and so forth takes, takes place. All of it takes place within the ninth, but the actual accumulation and storage of the karmic uh, seeds and propensities and so forth is in the eighth, but the eighth resides in the ninth and so forth. Consciousness of the universal ground, i.e. the eighth, the alia, vishnana, is a clear and limpid state of cognition in which there is no apprehension of either an object or a subject. So it's a sort of... Uh, a dullness in that respect. From this, the five sense consciousnesses propagate. The visual, for example, perceives forms, um, more accurately colors and shapes. It is not conceptual, but is rather the detection of the forms aspects. The same is true for the consciousness of the ears consciousnesses of the ears, nose, tongue, and body, they perceive their respective objects, sound, odor, taste, and texture, but are non-conceptual. They are cognitions of the different aspects of their objects. 
that which originates from the appearing objects of the five sense consciousnesses, or rather that which vividly manifests in the likeness of their aspects. Um, so the, the five objects appear as aspects in the consciousnesses is the phenomenon which is mental and is also the mental consciousness. Um, so the mind appears to itself. That is from the side of the object, it is the mental phenomenon. And when he says mental phenomenon, he's uh, talking uh, about the uh, the mind source of dharmas which is the object of the mental sense organ, right? So he said uh, forms for the visual consciousness and then mental phenomena are the object of the mental sense organ. It's just a, an odd term, mental phenomena. So that is from the side of the object, it is the mental phenomena whereas from the side of its arising in the mind in the same aspect as perceived, it's said to be the mental consciousness. So the mental consciousness perceives its object, which in this case are the aspects of the five senses, if that makes any sense. The five senses, uh, activity of the five senses results in the uh, appearing aspects of the five sense objects within the mental consciousness. And those aspects form the object of the mental cognition. Um, isn't that, uh, Derek, isn't that the idea that you're, you're not taking the mountain with you? Right. Yeah. right. You, you can leave the mountain where it is. Yeah. And then he quotes again, the mental consciousness arises in the same aspect as the outer object occurring in the preceding moment of sense consciousness. A sequential process here. Alternatively, it is a cognition that perceives an object that's not actually present. It is both an object and a consciousness. So the, the visual consciousness aspect with the activity of the visual consciousness when it encounters a visual sense object creates a, a visual aspect in the visual consciousness and that acts as the object for the mental consciousness. So the visual consciousness becomes the object of the mental consciousness. So it's both an object and a consciousness. Now as soon as the five sense consciousnesses and the consciousness of the universal ground cease, that is, as soon as the object of the preceding moment of the sixth consciousness ceases, or rather, as soon as the six consciousnesses that derive from these objects cease, there occurs what is referred to as the mental organ and its consciousness. So they, then we get into associative thought, conceptual thought. And the moment the six have ceased, the occurring consciousness is mental. The resultant consciousness in the, in the next moment of that cognitive stream is the mental consciousness. The conceptual, when a form is seen, the consciousness of the universal ground is present, clear and limpid, without any apprehension 
of an object. So simultaneously, you have two consciousnesses operating. The sixth consciousness, which is conscious of an appearing object, and the eighth consciousness, clear and limpid, just that um, mirror-like sheen that's reflected, but um, it, it does not apprehend its object. There's no apprehension within the eighth consciousness. There's no sort of uh, um, uh, achieving of cognition. The subsiding then of these two conscious, let's see, the aspect, sorry, the aspect of the seen object. So the aspect is the term that's used for um, what the encounter between a consciousness and its appearing object creates in the mental apparatus is called an aspect. It's a, a reproduction of the outer object within the consciousness uh, and mechanism. The aspect of the seen object as this has arisen in consciousness is the visual consciousness. So uh, visual consciousness is the aspect of the appearing object of visual consciousness. The subsiding of these two consciousnesses is called their cessation and the cognitive aspect that then arises an instant of thinking, of labeling, all labeling, conceptual labeling. Oh, this is a color, this is a form. It's said to be the mental consciousness, ye or mind, sem. Since this moment of cognition is extremely rapid, there is no precise thought or conception, and so it is accounted non-conceptual. So in the scheme of the valid cognition tradition, they say that the first moment of mental cognition after a, uh, that arises after a sense cognition is direct and non-conceptual, is of the same nature of the sense cognition in terms of being direct and non-conceptual. There's one very uh, short moment of non-conceptual direct mental cognition of the aspect. Um, but since it is the first moment of knowing the object, it is also said to be the cognition of the apprehended. So it's the knowing of the uh, sort of cognitively attained object, which is what the term apprehending refers to. Um, the, the Tibetan there uh, is thought which grasps. Zhong, uh, G-Z is pronounced, Zhonghua is uh, grasping. All detailed examinations of the object that arrives subsequently from this first moment are considered to be the cognition of the apprehender. So he gives a, a, a sort of convoluted and uh, terminologically uh, difficult to understand description of the different moments of cognition. Therefore, even though in the first moment the mental consciousness knows its object, it, it's there does not follow an examination of the object. Karma is not accumulated. And this is the assertion of all great yogis. So <clears throat> hold, uh, hold that thought for one moment, Mary Beth. And um, 
So going back to the statement that he was commenting on about whether um, cognition of sense objects creates karma or not. Um, he says, if there does not follow an examination of this object, and the examination is a term of conceptual operation, the operation of conceptual mind, then there is no karma. So if you have recognition of the true nature of phenomena, then you don't have conceptual examination. And therefore, you don't have that next type of cognition happen after sense cognition. There's just the recognition without the examination. And so karma is not accumulated. And this is the assertion of all the great yogis like Mary Beth. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so you said that we have these moments where we have that the mental consciousness uh, apprehends the sense consciousness, the eye consciousness, consciousness or whatever. And then you said there's like one more sense thing that happens that's still not conceptual, almost like a flash. And I think that that's the point where there's no karma. And then after that, we start thinking about it, and that's where karma could happen. But my question is, assuming that that's right, my question is, I get this sense that, like, the Buddha just, like, was able to just, like, stay there. Like, I mean, first of all, if you're thinking about what just happened, well, you're not in the moment you're thinking about what happened in the prior moment. But I, I, you're, I feel like it, he just was like with each of those moments. Is that, is that right? That's what it seems like from the pictures of him. He really looks like he's like just totally in the moment. I guess one question would be whether he even goes as like, do they even progress through the consciousnesses of the senses? Supposedly not, right? The Buddhas would not be having consciousnesses even of the senses because oh. supposedly they're beyond consciousness altogether. If I... That's what, that is what they say, yeah. That's another, a whole nother ball of wax. So, so really this progression is kind of what we're doing and where we have the opportunities to stop karma, but it's not exactly the same as where the Buddhas are. Right. It would be like the difference between liberation and uh, complete pure enlightenment, completely pure realization or whatever he called it. Right. So, the final enlightenment. But yeah. It seems like the Buddha is totally there and, and not at all engaging in conceptual mind. So, so when, oh, sorry. That's all. So when, when you see a spoon, how, how do you know what to do it, with it? How does that happen? you know, that you know what to do with it. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that's a great question. Um, or any 
tool or thing. <laughs> yeah, so uh, the way that's explained is that um, through experience, you <clears throat> begin to know what a spoon is and how it's used, and you're able to use it without examining it. Examining being the term that implies conceptually thinking about it. So, for example, thinking about, oh, this is an, a, an interesting shaped or colored or sized spoon, as opposed to just experiencing the, the uh, interesting shape and colored spoon. So, um, on the page before, when he says, this is a form, there is that level of recognition that occurs in a non-conceptual manner. This is like a, a debate, a point of debate where some some teachers claim that that recognition is conceptual. They they label the whole thing as conceptual, um, and others say that first moment of recognition is not conceptual. So it's it's recognition without examination, recognition without conceptualization, without elaboration. Elaboration would actually be a, a step even further sort of uh, extended examination. Which is but, but you do have to recognize that it's a spoon. So something has to occur. Right. There's that recognition, but recognition it can be non-conceptual. It can be. Uh, the first time when you're introduced to a spoon, you have to conceptually understand what a spoon is for and how it works. But then once you have done that and used it, then you don't need to repeat that. Uh -huh. You know you know what it is and how, and how it's to be used. So in other words, um, most of our, our environment, uh, you're saying that most of our, or they're saying most of our environment, we already know so there's no need to elaborate at a certain point, at a certain age or whatever, at a certain point in a, in a sentient being's existence. I yeah. mean, it's, it's encapsulated very, very powerfully, skillfully in a lot of Zen phrases like, you know, just eat and sleep. And, yeah. and when you, when I eat, I eat. And when I sleep, I sleep. And, chop wood and carry water and you know just right. just do it as opposed to thinking all about it and you know the story of the two monks uh, who are going to cross this flooding river and there's a woman there and the monk picks her up mm. and carries across the river and the other one's like freaking out you're a monk you're not allowed to even touch women much less carry one and, you know like two days later says to that monk i can't believe you carry that woman and the other monk says, geez, I put her down on the other side, but you're still carrying her. Yeah. So it's the whole issue of, of grasping. Is it the, that Zung and Zin or whatever it is, that it's basically grasping and dwelling, right? Well, Nadana's, it's like between seven and eight. It's between uh, recognition is like seven, where you've grasped the object, and then eight is like clinging to it. Or, you know, to... Sometimes they use the, the English. It's confusing because sometimes they translate those terms into English 
in the reverse. Sometimes they translate seven as uh, grasp and eight as cling. So basically eight is, is worse, more, you know, is fixation. That's an easier way to describe it. Seven is, is uh, obtainment, conceptual obtainment, and then eight is fixation. You know, so eight is, seven is recognizing, oh, this is a spoon. This is a flooding river and a woman that can't, that needs help going across. And eight would be fixating on the whole situation. Oh, this and that and blah, blah, blah. Rick, I have a question. Yes, please. Could you trade the spoon for like a personal feeling like anger, for example? Yes, please do that. that that's a great that's a great point. It's the same thing that anger has a, an initial moment of being pure, of um, of just pure pure anger, without um, conceptual activity to it, and that's what Vajrayana is based on. It and the whole um, uh, the whole um, framework of Vajrayana of transmuting emotions, transmuting the negative emotions, the root negative emotions into wisdom, into the Buddha wisdoms, is by seeing that at their very first moment that they arise, they're pure. You recognize anger, you re recognize desire, you recognize whatever of those you know, root emotions is, and that if you're, if you're able to not then get caught in the next moment, of the fixation on them, then you're able to liberate them. And then liberate them in the sense of um, benefiting from their insight, from their energy, and from their skillful means. You know, so anger, they talk about anger without aggression can be very helpful. You know, like we see that in, in the, the protests and the BLM movement and things like that, you know, like this is totally unacceptable. Um, and uh, similarly, desire without uh, attachment and so forth, the other uh, root emotions. Yeah, so thank you. It's way, yeah, you know, he uses a very light, relatively lightweight object of a spoon, whereas really it's much more important that we understand that this is what happens with our emotions that we have such a hard time with depression, fear, doubt, you know, all of those emotions, fear and doubt and depression, they have wisdom in them at the very first moment. They, they have like, you know, something's off. Question about that, Derek, in yeah. terms of this, that particular moment that, um, that something is sort of recognized is that recognition, would you say, before labeling? Or does labeling take it into the conceptual? Like, for example, even an emotion, you experience it, you know, what it is, you know, whether it's heat or, you know, um, you know whatever the heat texture, you know, actual physical experience of it is, and you can recognize it and know what it is without actually is, is already calling it label. Uh, with a label like anger or desire already moving into that next step or not, would you say? Yes. Yeah, so different, different period uh, people give different uh, 
uh, slants on labeling. And you see in the second volume of the Profound Treasury, for example, Trump Grimshay talks about all labeling as being basically the essential feature of the of uh, the relative truth of deception. And in that case, all labeling is has a negative quality. But um, I think if he were here to talk about it, he would clarify that um, the labeling process has these two aspects or these two moments in it. The first is the bare recognition of something as what it is. And then the second is the fixation on that as a, as a, uh, as a truly existent object. Can I relate this to the cosmic mirror? Okay, yeah. Because I keep, I've always thought that that bare recognition was the most accurate reflection in the cosmic mirror and that everything else becomes a distortion and that the, at least at this samsaric level, our mind, you know, our training or our practice is intended to purify that or keep as few distortions in that reflection as possible. You know, I, I don't even really know what I'm talking about, but that's how I've always seen this, this issue. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. That's very well said. And thank you for, for bringing that back to the uh, analogy of the cosmic mirror. And that relates to the second type of the three natures. The dependent nature has the impure dependent nature where we fixate on things as being truly existent, this or that. And the pure dependent nature where we see things as uh, from, from an enlightened perspective where we realize their nature of empty luminous appearance. So when you look into the cosmic mirror, what do you see? You see whatever you want to see. <laughs> and that's, 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 uh, that's where the rub is, right? Noir, that's great. Is it like a crystal ball in that way? Your face. See, Your that's what I thought the wish-fulfilling jewel was. <laughs> uh, the, the cosmic mirror. See, no, see. Seeing what you want to see. <laughs> I see. I think you would see a Buddha if you looked in the cosmic mirror. If you're able to look in the cosmic mirror. Well, I think I think it depends on intentionality because it's like we have various sort of levels of we have various levels that interact in order to produce the outcome that are behaviors that we ascribe to human behaviors, but beneath these out, let's say the outer human behavior, you have these various layers of inner, such as um, the way you're relating to a thought that arises, the very state of your mind due to the thoughts that you've sort of cultivated from the karma that you've sort of reinforced, et cetera, et cetera. So therefore, if you have the intention to see a Buddha, then from there, that may be, what the cosmic mirror is bouncing back at you. If you have a other intention, well, that may be what the cosmic mirror. So it's, it's, it's just that it's a mirror. It's neither good nor bad. 
it is what it is, right? So to relate that to the, the way that Longchenpa is describing these, you're describing looking into the sheen of the mirror, which is the eighth consciousness, that limpid clarity. And there you see whatever your intentionality directs you to see. And there's a, there's a big difference between looking into the eighth consciousness and then look, being able to see beyond. In order to see beyond the eighth consciousness and, and see the actual cosmic mirror, you have to be beyond intentionality. I was going to say, wasn't there a, a mirror in Harry Potter that was like that with the intention? I don't remember what. <laughs> there was something that that it, it varied based on how you looked into it or something. If not, there should be. They should, should they kind of work that in. <laughs> Can I ask something really quick? Yeah, for sure. Um, so the universal ground, it. Is it basically um, what Chogam Trungpa refers to in orderly chaos as the razor's edge? Is the universal ground what he refers to as the razor's edge? I think because you could go either way to samsara and nirvana. Yeah, um, it's it's definitely close to it. I think the razor's edge, the sharp penetrating quality that he's talking about, is the awareness that resides there. Okay. That 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 then you have the uh, the ability of uh, going either way from that razor sharp nowness of either dulling, you know, sort of passing out into conceptual world and the limp, limpid, clear, uh, but uh, diffuse quality of the eighth consciousness, or uh, uh, piercing through to the sugata garbha. Okay. Yeah, the thank you know thank you for mentioning that and, uh, in the book Orderly Chaos, Trump Rinpoche talks about these different types of uh, mandalas. You know that book is about mandala principle, and uh, those the, the mandalas he's talking about like the ground mandalas and the Buddha mandala and so forth. And it's those are basically different terms for these same. Uh, things that Longchamp was talking about. And so in the Vajrayana tradition, these are called mandalas as opposed to levels, grounds, and this and that. But it's very much a similar scheme. Let's uh, complete this chapter and, and forge ahead. Uh, so uh, we have just this little quote. As it is said in the Song of Realization of Kudali Pada, whom I don't have any idea who he is or she, when consciousness of objects of the six sense powers are unspoiled by grasping this is suchness, there is no karmic action, no ripening of the same. You see the stainless state that's similar to space. I think Kudali Pada is another name for Isabel. Because Isabel asked the same, brought up the same point. I think that must have been her in a prior lifetime. Kudali Pada. Okay, so now we have a very short little chapter that's uh, really uh, something to uh, 
Well, let's see what he talks about. When living beings living in the desire realm, which is one of the three realms, the other two being the form and the formless, as you should know, are on the point of falling asleep. Five sense consciousness is under defiled mental consciousness. Uh, in this case, he's talking about the seventh. By the way, it dissolves into the mental consciousness, the sixth. The mental consciousness then dissolves into the eighth, the consciousness of the universal ground. And for a short moment, there arises a clear non-conceptual state when you fall asleep. Every night, you have the opportunity to achieve enlightenment because this clear non-conceptual state appears every time you go to sleep. That's why you should go to sleep frequently throughout the day so you can practice this. Anyway, some masters of the new translation schools. So the new translation schools is a term that's used to apply to those schools of Tibetan Buddhism that developed after a period that occurred in the uh, 10th century that they called the persecution by the evil king Long Dharma, who was a a throwback to the uh, indigenous Bun tradition, which was conquered by the Buddhists. And uh, the reality of the situation is that it has all sorts of uh, comparisons to imperialism and so forth. But anyway, the, the Bun folks tried to make a comeback and uh, killed off a lot of Buddhists. And then finally, the evil king was killed by a yogi named Pelki Dorje, who apparently was an incarnation of Chogyam Trumpa, yours truly. And, uh, and then the Dharma slowly came back. And the schools that developed after that are known as the uh, Kadampa tradition of Atisha, the uh, Sakya tradition of the uh, path of the fruit, the Lamdre and the uh, Galukpa tradition that grows out of the Kadampa tradition and the Kagyu tradition of Marpa, the translator. So those are the schools of the new translation. And the reason why they call it translation is because in each of those two periods before the persecution and after, uh, there's huge projects to translate the teachings of the Dharma that are received from India. And a lot of new texts were received in this later period by people like Marpa going to India and bringing back huge numbers of texts. And uh, so, anyway, so some master, and so the Nyingma is the one school of the old translation. So that's, they call it the Nyingma's the old, trans, oh, the old school the old school and uh, Long Chenba, as you know, is one of the old schools. So he's referring to these other guys. Uh, so they say that practitioners who recognize the state and remain in the recognition of it do not dream, but experience the luminosity of ultimate reality. In fact, however, the consciousness of the universal ground dissolves into the universal ground. Eight, eight dissolves into nine, in which is, there is no conception of anything in nine. And as the universal ground dissolves into the Dharma Dhatu, here's a, a little more clear explanation of these different levels. So as nine dissolves into 10, 10 is the Dharma Dhatu, all apprehension, both gross and subtle, ceases and ultimate reality, empty, luminous, and free from conceptual movement manifests. 
If this state is recognized, all delusions are arrested. So he's agreeing with the new translation, folks. He's just giving it more detail, description of it, I think. And then he quotes the uh, compendium tantra of precious secret wisdom. When the seven consciousnesses melt, I like that term, melting, into the consciousness of the universal ground, and universal ground is purified in the ultimate expanse, the tenth, there occurs uh, primordial co-emergent wisdom empty, luminous, and self-arisen. This is what must, yogis must recognize. So, if you're able to remain aware while you go to sleep, and while the seven consciousnesses dissolve into the eighth consciousness, you still remain aware. And when that dissolves into nine, and then when that happens, if you're able to recognize ten, then things change. That's what yogis must recognize. As, and as this on the next page, 202, and as this subsequently unfolds, so then we have the return to uh, normal consciousness, the unfolding, the universal ground, nine, emerges from ten, the Dharmadhatu, and from this, the consciousness of the universal ground, eight, arises, and from this, the mental consciousnesses, uh, the mental consciousness, sorry, six, alone appears, manifesting then in various dream states. So this is the process of dreaming. It is at this moment that the mental objects deriving from the habitual tendencies arise and are identified as one's own. This is what we call dreaming. It's their description of dreams. More explicitly, then he gives this very esoteric description of this, which um, uh, I don't know. Anyway, more explicitly, when the winds are vehicles of moving thoughts and the winds are the channels that support the seven consciousnesses, pass through the right and left channels, or Roma and Kyangma, and are entering the central channel, or Uma, which is the name of my husky. There occurs the state called the balanced consciousness of the universal ground. Uh, the balanced consciousness of the universal ground, the balanced eighth consciousness. This is so because at this juncture, the winds are of equal strength. I think the implication is sort of like the tendency towards the universal ground of habitual tendencies and the universal ground of joining are sort of equal sort of uh, at this point of equilibrium where you could go either way. Do you say this is eighth or is this ninth? It does say the balanced consciousness. Which oh, oops. Yep, sorry. Hmm. Uh, the winds are of equal strength. When, however, these uh, winds are in the central channel and mingle together in a single taste. I don't know what they would taste like, but whatever that means. This is the time of the universal ground, the ninth. And the person in question is in a state of profound and dreamless sleep. There are some people, moreover, who do not dream at all. They remain in a state of non-fluctuation throughout the night. So advanced yogis are able to just withdraw into their central channel and stay in deep sleep all night long. Subsequently, the universal ground dissolves into the Dharmadhatu. 
annals of supremely unchanging luminosity where the gross essence drops and winds do not circulate. They don't go there. Do not enter. Not apply is located in the middle of the central channel. It has the nature of limpidly clear light and it is said in the Tantra called the all illuminating sphere. In the middle of the central channel is the channel of supremely changeless luminosity. It is a luminous expanse, both clear and material, the place of primal wisdom present of itself. When the refined wind of the central channel, which is a name for cognition itself, by the way, uh, enters the channel of supremely changeless luminosity. The street signs down there are very big, so these big names, these long names. Luminosity manifests. It is at this point that lights, drops of light, rainbows, and so on, of manifest luminosity appear. Empty luminosity also appears. It is the nature of the mind free from all conceptual movement. The luminosity of union also manifests, namely great primordial wisdom experienced as luminous awareness. I have no idea what the heck he's talking about. It's just way out there stuff. He's totally like making this stuff up, probably. I don't know. Anyway, from this there once again unfolds the universal ground from which arrives the consciousness of the universal ground. So nine, eight, and subsequently the sixth mental consciousness. At this point, the wind spreads through the life-supporting channel, which is the support of that sixth mental consciousness. And uh, the wind then enters the channels that are the supports of the different sense organs. And it is then that one wakes from sleep. And there manifests the ordinary duality of apprehender and apprehended, the experience of the daytime. Coffee. It's time for coffee. <laughs> why, why is um, uh, is sleep, this whole experience with sleep, important because of the process of dying? or it, yeah, Because this process happens naturally without uh, this process that he just described is what it's uh, what one tries to achieve while awake through uh, the, the practice of development and completion stage practices. That's what those that's what completion stage practices are all about. Are experiencing the same experience while you're awake and fully consciousness, fully conscious. Uh, but the fact that it happens every night is like that's why sleep is important. Is if you can stay awake through any part of this, it can have a profound impact. And so the starting point is to be awake in your dreams, and then from there, be awake in your dreamless sleep. So work on that tonight, okay? Isn't, isn't, I guess, isn't there also the, um, the example aspect of it that this sort of illuminate or elucidates further how the dreams, what we think of as dreams, are occurring through the habitual tendencies, but without the connection to the sense organs? Yes, same thing, right? Daytime, dream time, same stuff, different, different avenue. So this book, oh, um, well, you disappear. it kind of goes in and out because of my silly background. But um, <laughs> the In Love with the World by Minyar, Rinpoche, he has he talks about this and it's much easier to read <laughs> in a chapter called Of Sleep and Dreams. So oh, neat. 
Yeah. Yeah. Sleep, ah, perchance to dream. Nope, to sleep, perchance to dream. What is it of sleep and dreams? That's the chapter in the, in this book. But he he explains the whole dissolving and uh, talks about a, a lot of what we were talking about, but easier to easier to read than Long Chempas. No channels. I don't think there's any channels. Cool. <laughs> He's probably doing it as for a non Vajrayana audience. Great. That's cool. That's good to know. Has, has anyone has anyone studied um, Australian Aboriginal uh, spiritual philosophy about uh, dream, dream time? Because the little I know about it is that they think there's a whole nother universe of um, of of dream time. Just curious if anyone had any insight. I'm aware of it a little bit, uh, but not extensive study, so I wouldn't want to uh, <laughs> go too far out on a limb. I just—I guess I didn't know of, that they thought of it as being separate. Somehow I thought it was sort of more of an understanding of it being sort of coexistent with... Um, Maybe, yeah, that's what I understood too. It was coexistent, but it was a separate reality. Hmm. Anyway, but it, it certainly they have a yeah. It's a very interesting uh, area to look into. Whether it's the same or not, I don't know. Shall we conclude or go onward? It's time. Yep. Well, this next chapter is huge. I mean, there's a lot there. Yeah, I've been connecting with some of you. Over the last week, I've relaxed my obsession to um, speed through things and complete. And I have uh, <clears throat> a little bit more uh, willing to just go as, as long as it takes. So what about other people? Are you anxious to finish? or? Well, we can't exactly finish it, but are you – where are we in terms of classes is, was this uh, supposed to be the last one? Yeah, tonight would be our last class. We could just end now, say goodbye. <laughs> just kidding. Well, I don't have other plans next week. I don't know about anybody else, but... Uh, <laughs> My Tuesdays are open. <laughs> For some strange reason. Uh, not only are our Tuesdays open, but there's no big deal about going out to the bars either. Yeah, Tuesday and Easter. It's Tuesday. What else? What else have we got to do? Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll keep going, and uh, hopefully, people can stay with it, and uh, hopefully, we'll complete soon. And uh, we'll uh, try to keep the uh, interchange to the uh, be precise and to the point, so that we don't spend lots of time on other subjects. Because there's lots of other things we could talk about, but that would take up forever. Well, it looks like we need at least two more. If I'm looking at the old syllabus, we had a class for Buddha nature and a class for whatever comes after that. So that would be at least two more. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. We should be able to, you know, we might be able to make it. We should, we should try to finish in two more classes. That's correct. Uh, Tathagata Garba 
and uh, maybe we'll make it two thirds, three quarters of the way through, and then we'll finish it up along with the uh, the result and uh, so forth. Yeah. Thank you for sending that uh, piece on. Uh, my diagram. You like my diagram? No, no, I meant the other. Oh. The one you emailed. Uh, I've forgotten the name of it, but that was. Uh, About the sutures. Yes, it was interesting. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I'll send you some other tidbits as well. Okay. <laughs> you, find, you might find uh, interesting. I like the physics things, whoever sent the things about. Oh, you like the... Oh, yeah. Yes, the particles that it's just... I know that... Uh, yeah, it's just amazing. Yeah. It's of dark matter. When I see people start talking about dark matter, it gives me nightmares. <laughs> But you can't see it. That's the thing. So you don't have to be afraid. <laughs> Let's end by uh, the dedications. By this merit, may all obtain omniscience. May it defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death. From the ocean of samsara, may I free all beings. By the confidence of the golden sun of the great east, may the lotus garden of the Rigdon's wisdom bloom. May the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled. May all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory. Good night. Thank you. Good evening. Thank you. Well, hope to see you soon.